My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode two of our ongoing series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. In our last episode, we talked about the five good emperors who led Rome at its peak in the ascension of the somewhat reluctant Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius to the throne. He had grand ideas about how a good emperor should lead, but the tide of Roman civilization is about to turn, and Marcus will struggle to keep the empire together as disaster after disaster besets it. In this episode, Marcus has to respond to an invasion by the powerful Parthian Empire on his eastern border. We're going to dive into the long rivalry between Rome and Parthia in the eastern Mediterranean and give you a real sense of just how lethal the Parthians could be when they faced Rome's toughest soldiers. Also, this episode talks a lot about provinces and countries in the ancient Mediterranean, so I'm including a helpful map, which you can find on patreon.com slash theturningwheel. You don't need to donate to view the map. Episode 1.2, The 700-Year Stalemate, Round 4. Volagasis IV did not wait. The Parthian king of kings heard about the death of his Roman counterpart, Antoninus Pius, a few months after the man passed away in the spring of 161 AD, and he decided that there would be no better time to reopen the never-quite-settled war between their peoples. Even the smoothest transition from ruler to heir involved some uncertainty in an adjustment period, and if he struck quickly, he might just catch the Romans flat-footed. Over the previous decade, Volagasis had reunited the splintered Parthian realm left by the successful invasion of the Roman Emperor Trajan 44 years prior, methodically bringing rebellious nobles back under the imperial yoke and and putting vast tracts of land back on the tax rolls. All of this happened with little apparent opposition from Antoninus, leading many modern historians to argue that he was not proactive enough in dealing with the empire's growing external threats during his long and peaceful reign. Others say the huge number of problems that sprouted up as Marcus and Lucius took the throne was just bad timing. Whatever the case, not long after the two men took over in 161 AD, just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and Marcus would spend most of his reign trying to keep the empire from unraveling. The most pressing problem in the early years of his reign, however, was the threat from Parthia. The Parthians occupied a huge swath of territory in Asia beyond the strip of Roman coastal provinces. Their domain began in the north at the Euphrates River in what is today Turkey, and ran to the eastern edge of what is today Iran. If you took all of the United States east of the Mississippi with the exception of New England, you'd have a landmass roughly the size of Parthia, or about 648,000 square miles. The Roman Empire, for comparison, stretched over several million square miles after you exclude the Mediterranean Sea, or a landmass roughly half the size of the United States. Parthia was an interesting mix of a highly decentralized feudal society led by a king who also controlled numerous subject cities filled with peoples of widely varied cultures. 
The nobility of Parthia controlled vast tracts of land and held dominion over an underclass of serfs, as well as various free peoples. The Parthians were descended from a horse culture of the steppe, and their nobility went to war as heavily armed and armored cataphracts, which is the closest the classical world ever got to a plate-armored knight. Their horses were decked in scale mail, and the riders, bearing a lance and a mace or sword, were covered in ring or chain mail. Much more numerous, though, were their retainers and serfs, who were some of antiquity's best horse archers. These crack riders made famous the so-called Parthian shot, which consisted of pelting their opponents with arrows and then turning their horse about and fleeing when the enemy charged them. The trick was that they didn't just run, though. They continuously shot backwards over their shoulder at their pursuers, staying just out of reach. Throughout Parthian territory were sprinkled prosperous Greek and Macedonian cities created by Alexander the Great and his successors, as well as the varied people who'd once made up the Persian Empire, Persians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Medes, and other groups. Their economy was primarily agrarian, but the Parthian Empire was incredibly rich, growing prosperous off the silk trade road routes that passed through their territory on the way to the Mediterranean. After the Parthians conquered much of what was once the old Persian Empire, the state adopted Greek as one of the, its two official languages alongside Parthian and absorbed much of the sophisticated Persian culture, writing, and architecture that made the region a center of the civilized world. By the late Republican period, Rome didn't really have many large, organized, civilized empires left to contend with. There were always tribes pressing on the borders with various intensities, but none had the logistics, manpower, battlefield skill, and knowledge of siege warfare that Parthia could effectively bring to bear against them. It made them a real threat. As Rome spread ever further east in the late Republican era, the two large empires came into conflict, mostly due to the blatant imperialism of Roman generals seeking glory and money. The first Roman to try his hand at Parthia was Marcus Licinius Crassus, a man of legendary wealth and the conqueror of Spartacus, who wanted to emerge from the shadow of his fellow triumvirates, Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. With little in the way of justification, Crassus invaded Parthian territory with seven legions and a fairly small cavalry contingent in 54 BC. After capturing some lightly defended cities on the western edge of Mesopotamia, Crassus marched his men deeper into Parthian territory the following year. Seeing signs of large numbers of men and horses leading off into the desert, he decided that this must be Parthia's response and followed them out into the flat, baking sand. The army marched for some time at a brutal pace with the hope of catching the Parthians, and the enemy was eventually spotted. Now I realize that this encounter took place about a century before Marcus's time, but because we have a great deal of information on how the battle went, I want to set the stage for what is about to happen and what Marcus's sol soldiers are going to have to contend with. 
Now just imagine this scenario. You're a Roman legionnaire. You're the elite of the classical battlefield and have basically overcome every type of infantry the Mediterranean has thrown at you. Greek hoplites and Macedonian phalanxes? Check. Fast-moving Spanish swordsmen, long-haired Gauls, and burly Germans? Check, check, check. The hardened mercenaries of Hannibal? Yep, beat them too. So, you see these Parthians in the distance. Sure, they're on horses, but there are only 10,000 of them or so. Crassus has a good 40,000 legionnaires, 4,000 horsemen, and another 4,000 light skirmishers. You're not that worried. Crassus does something unorthodox, though. Instead of ordering you and your comrades into the usual long battle line, he has you form a hollow square, with each side facing outward. So now, the Parthians can't ride around and hit you from behind, but they can completely surround you, and that's exactly what they do. Soon there are horse archers on every side, raining down a hail of arrows on you. It's okay, it's not too bad, you've had arrows fired at you before. You've got a sturdy rectangular shield that's four feet tall and two and a half feet wide, and it's easy to take cover behind it. You and your fellow legionnaires interlock your shields and block most of the arrows. You've also got a strong helmet and a shirt of chainmail. Your short sword is at your side, and you've got two javelins you can throw in case any of those horse archers get too close. It's hot, you're baking in the sun, and you're thirsty, but you've faced worse. You hear orders going out. It sounds like Crassus is ordering the skirmishers to make a sally. The Roman historian Plutarch writes, quote, And when Crassus ordered his light-armed troops to make a charge, they did not advance far, but encountering a multitude of arrows, abandoned their undertaking and ran back for shelter among the men-at-arms, among whom they caused the beginning of disorder and fear, for these now saw the velocity and force of the arrows, which fractured armor and tore away through every covering alike, whether soft or hard. Unquote. It's okay. You just have to hunker down and wait a bit. How long can it take for the Parthians to use up a few quivers of arrows? 10 minutes? 20? That's not that bad. And then you'll be able to fight them on your terms, with your sword. Crassus now tries to order the whole square to march towards some of the surrounding Parthians at the double. But as soon as you get close to the Parthians, they just withdraw, firing arrows over their shoulders as they do it. A halt is ordered again, and you hunker down behind your shield wall. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. You watch the sun creep across the sky, and those arrows aren't stopping. Every so often, an arrow gets through and hits someone's foot, or their unguarded arm, and sometimes... One finds a weak spot in a shield and punches through. As the hours pass, the arrows never stop. How could they possibly have this many arrows? More and more men are being cut down. Time passes, but it's all a blur of shimmering heat. The doctor is trying to pull arrows out of the downed legionnaires in that incessant buzz of incoming projectiles. Your shields look like porcupines now, and hundreds of men are lying on the ground, nursing arrow wounds. You curse Crassus. Why isn't he doing something? 
This is what Dio says about the army at this point. Quote, The missiles falling thick upon them from all sides at once struck down many by a mortal blow, rendered many useless for battle, and caused distress to all. They flew into their eyes and pierced their hands and all other parts of their body and penetrated their armor, depriving them of their protection and compelled them to expose themselves to each new missile. Thus, while a man was guarding against arrows or pulling out one that had struck fast, he received more wounds, one after another. Consequently, it was impractical for them to move and impractical for them to remain at rest. Neither, could af neither course afforded them safety, but each was fraught with destruction, the one because it was out of their power and the other because they were then more easily wounded." Unquote. You peek through the shield wall and notice something. There are camels out there in the desert, dozens of them. They're loaded down head to foot with bundles of arrows, and as you watch, horse archers empty their quivers and then just ride off to a camel and restock. Crassus and his command staff notice this too, so he orders his son to take his cavalry in a single legion and make a sally in an attempt to drive off the Parthians. Your square opens and the men march out. You all cheer as the Parthians along one of your sides flee before them. They chase them over some hills and you lose sight of them. Your square closes back up again and the arrow fire continues. But what you didn't see is that the Parthians just kept going, firing arrow after arrow as your advancing countrymen charge at them. Eventually, all the Roman cavalry charges the horse archers, leaving the legionnaires behind. The Parthians keep falling back, but after they draw the cavalry off a bit, a force that had kept at the back throws off their cloaks, revealing heavily armed and armored cataphracts. There are only a thousand of them, but the light and medium Roman cavalry, exhausted by a day of sheltering their horses from a rain of arrows, doesn't stand a chance and are cut down almost to the man. Next, the force turns on the legionnaires and runs them down. Eventually, the sun sets and the Parthians withdraw. Crassus finds out what happened to his son, and he's practically catatonic. Lower-ranked officers take command of the army because Crassus seems incapable of taking action himself. The army limps off toward a friendly city, but the thousands of wounded men can't keep up. In the morning, the Parthians comb the desert for stragglers, running them down. In the end, only 10,000 make it back to Roman territory. The rest, including Crassus and his son, are captured or killed. This was the Parthian war machine at its most effective. Years later, Mark Anthony would take another crack at Parthia, this time bringing 100,000 men with him. The Parthians outmaneuvered him in the mountains of Armenia, and the general barely managed to get out alive with a fraction of his army. The Parthians did push into Roman territories and captured several eastern provinces during a couple of campaigns, but the Roman counterattacks always pushed them back. Outside of small-scale skirmishes, Rome and Parthia were mostly at peace through the early imperial period, but the Roman Emperor Trajan, the consummate conqueror, decided on expansion on a grand scale and once again invaded Parthia at the head of a large army. 
His timing, for once, was perfect. As the Parthians were in the middle of a civil war, and the general easily defeated the Parthians and marched his men all the way to the Persian Gulf. But as his campaign wound down, Trajan learned a lesson that Rome would forget and relearn many times. It was one thing to capture territory on the periphery of the Parthian Empire, and another to hold it. Before long, much of Trajan's captured Mesopotamian territory was in rebellion, throwing out his garrisons and requiring a huge commitment of troops to put down. At the same time, there was a rebellion in Palestine he had to see to. Realizing what an endless slog it would be to hold his new conquest permanently, the emperor split part of the territory he'd captured into multiple pieces to further keep the Parthians squabbling among themselves. But Trajan soon died, and his successor, Hadrian, gave up even more of Trajan's conquests, spinning off client kingdoms to act as buffer states. This was the stalemate that Marcus inherited, in which he would pass on in turn. When the Romans were on point, they might have a chance of conquering some Parthian territory, but holding it was another question. The Romans had come to appreciate that the Parthians were no barbarian horde from the steppe, but a sophisticated civilization that could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them militarily, at least when they had their dynastic ducks in a row. The problem was that Antoninus had just sat by as Volagasius IV methodically got his ducks lined up, one after the other. This wasn't a stalemate that Marcus could afford to ignore. The Parthians could easily capture the eastern Mediterranean if Marcus made a mistake. He would have to find a way to defeat them. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, the narrative will skip back to Marcus, who stayed put in Rome while the Parthian War played out. We'll look at how his rather gentler-than-usual tugs on the reins of power went down, and examine how the actions he took contrasted strongly with those of the man who put him on the path to the throne, Hadrian. Then, two episodes from now, we'll get back to how the Romans fared against the Parthians. If you enjoyed this episode, can you do me two favors? First, please write a positive review for us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Even just a couple of five-star reviews can get the show seen by a whole lot more people. Ultimately, that's what's going to determine whether or not this show keeps going. Second, please consider financially supporting the podcast on Patreon. If you do, you'll get access to episode 9 of this 12-part series, a bonus episode that only supporters will get to listen to. You'll also get some more goodies as this podcast gets off the ground. If you want to do this, go to patreon.com slash theturningwheel. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.